HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. We are broadcasting live from Slow Food Nations in Denver, Colorado. This is our third year in a row coming at you from Slow Food Nations. We are delighted to be here. I want to say a big thank you again to Slow Food and Slow Food Nations for having us, to our sponsors, Hearst Ranch, Big Green Egg, and the Julia Child Foundation for the Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our coverage possible. We have three very, very exciting guests sitting down with us now. To the far right, we have Krista Roberts, who's the director of Slow Food Nations. Welcome, Krista. Thanks. Glad to be here. Next up, we have Kristen Essig, who is the co-chef and owner of Coquette in New Orleans and the soon-to-be-opening Thalia as well. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. And then, of course, to my right, the one and only legendary Alice Waters. So to start us off this afternoon, we are um, coming up towards the later afternoon on Sunday. We're getting towards the closing of Slow Food Nations. I want to talk to all of you about the highlights of the weekend so far. Um, any events or takeaways that have stuck out at you? Also, any delicious bites that you want to talk about? <laughs> Would you like to start, Alice? Well, I was just thinking about... The thunderstorm. It was very exciting. <laughs> last, last night. I've never been in a storm like that, where they give you a flash flood warning to get off the streets. And I thought, well, you know, we really have to think about the weather yes. and how it affects all of us. And so I was really, really pleased both with the panels that I was on this weekend and the big opening event to have us bring climate into the big picture and how food is so important to climate and the way that we eat can actually regenerate the soil and address climate change. And it's so hopeful. It's really, uh, actually, every time you make compost, it, it brings the good stuff up and brings the carbon down. And so this organization, whose purpose is really to bring us an awareness 
but not, not scolding us, but in fact, inviting us to eat something delicious and know where it came from. And in that way, we can really address the big picture of climate. So thank you for the opportunity. It's always hard to follow Alice. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of takeaways from the weekend, just um, from big picture to little picture, all of which are just as important. Um, you know, I think it's very easy to get overwhelmed with what you think you can't do and focus on what you can. And knowing that you have the support of so many other people who share the same values, who want to participate, who want to support small businesses that are stretching their dollars to make sure that we're making the right choices for our guests, it's an extremely important part. And I, I really can't believe I'm here. This is my first Slow Food Nations. Um, and I was lucky enough to give a demo yesterday with Sheila from Monterey Bay and Sheila from uh, Jack's Oyster Co. And we talked about mullet, which is a fantastic sustainable fishery, um, primarily off the coast of Florida, but throughout the Gulf Coast. And that was a really, a really great day. Um, we were lucky enough to have our demo right before the rainstorm, so we got out <laughs> in time. Um, and then this evening, um, Chef Stephen Satterfield of Miller Union in Atlanta is sort of holding the uh, zero waste community supper this evening. And so we've been over there prepping all day with mm -hmm. all of the things, you know, what can I do with eight pounds of parsley stems? You know, I'm gonna make something happen with that. So it's been a real, a real pleasure to just be in the company of so many fantastic people. Yeah, and Chef Stephen was on yesterday he had sort of just seen the list of what was beginning to become available. The Zero Waste Dinner is collecting food that hasn't been served or scraps from food preparation or extras of any kind and consolidating them into this incredibly fine dining, wonderful experience. Um, but how is that, how's that list coming along? You mentioned eight pounds of parsley stems. <laughs> what, what are some of the um, maybe most exciting or challenging ingredients that you guys have to work I, with today? I think the, some of the most challenging things are the, the lack of some of major proteins. I think we're so used to building our meals around protein. And so we're very vegetable focused on this, which is really something that we need to be much more aware of, as, especially as we start talking more about climate change and how, um, animal husbandry and factory farming really contributes to so much of this. And what I've been able to take away is everyone has a new idea that you've never seen before and being inspired by other people, there's just nothing like it. I mean, we, we really, mm -hmm. the amount of volunteers that are here participating, donating their time and energy, it is not easy <laughs> to be in a room full of all of these chefs and everyone has this great idea about what they're going to do. and. And you're like, well, I don't have that. So we're going to make something else happen. And everyone has just given absolutely everything that they have. It's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Krista, you've had your hands very full this weekend. <laughs> you put this whole thing together. Um, you, I know you can't really choose favorites, uh, but what is, uh, what's the weekend been like for you? And has there been a particularly exciting moment or takeaway for you? Well, one of my favorite things about this festival is how it brings people together through food. It allows us to come together to celebrate food culture, to celebrate taste, to meet the people who produce our food. And at the same time, it also lets us dive into some of the deeper topics of discussion, some of the issues that are very important that face our food communities and food system. And I think all of that creates this very inspiring space. 
In terms of tastes, I was really excited this year about our kitchen counter, which featured a number of different chefs, and it allowed for kind of really the exploration of of food through all different senses. You were listening and being part of a discussion at the same time you were watching this food being prepared and then you got to taste it. And it really explored a lot of different areas. We had the flavors of the African diaspora. We explored the coastal flavors of Mexico. And um, I thought it was a, a really exciting new space that was part of the festival. For anybody who's new to Slow Food Nations, what do you hope is their takeaway, the sort of overall vision of the festival? For me, I hope most of all that people who haven't heard of Slow Food before, and I hope they were able to learn a little and perhaps take something away about how they want to get more involved. And for those who are new and who have been part of this community. I hope everyone walks away inspired to go back to their day to day to create change for good, clean and fair food. Awesome. Well, on that note, Kristen, you're getting ready to open your second place in New Orleans. <laughs> and for you, what are some of the big questions in your head that are sort of related to the slope food principles of good, clean and fair? And is there anything that you can take out of this weekend's gathering as you're thinking about opening Thalia? So how much time do you have? Because <laughs> I could probably take up the rest of the hour. Um, so we are actually building our second restaurant as a way to engineer and control and make our byproduct and trim an economical contribution to our community. Um, so trying to find a way to take a restaurant. Our, our current restaurant, Coquette, is a 120-seat restaurant. And I know that there are much larger operations in the world, but for us, she is a beast. And it is a lot of work and a lot of difficult um, decisions, honestly, that we have to make in order to sort of stay in line with our own philosophies. So when we can find a way to sort of scale in a smaller direction. Thalia will be a 40-seat restaurant, and we're going to use everything that we don't use at Coquette at Thalia. So we'll continue to still work with our quality farmers, fishermen, foragers, but we'll also be able to take some of the things that maybe would have been too expensive for our business model. For example, we have a farmer that grows or raises beautiful ducks. I can't afford the ducks for Thalia's menu, but I can take their carcasses and make a really beautiful broth. Um, we can use that broth to cook Louisiana long grain rice. I mean, there are lots of different ways to sort of get that in. Um, I think another thing for us that we're really working on is we're going towards a, a higher hourly wage for all of our staff, and we're going to be running a whole house model as opposed to a front and back of house model. Uh, we're going to be doing a whole house tip pool so that there's not this disparity between who's making more or who's making less. Uh, really making sure that everyone is as involved and can contribute as much as they possibly want to. Um, we want it to be a neighborhood gathering space. We want it to be a part of our community. We're actually going to only be open for five nights every week because we want different neighborhood organizations to be able to use our space on Sunday and Monday nights for our, our neighborhood meetings and for places for activism to take place. We have an amazing group called the Red Bean Crew and they're sponsored by Camellia Beans and my friend Devin is the artist that's doing all the work for Thalia and he has um, two Mardi Gras groups and they wear everything made out of beans. So we'll be beaning on Sunday nights at Thalia and that's a really, it's just, you know, it's easy for this whole thing to just be a restaurant, but you can really turn it into an engine for your community, and that's what we want to do. 
How do you approach informing your diners about some of those very thoughtful menu choices that you're making around the food waste reduction? We do it very simply by having very honest and open communications with people. Um, we share the lives of our employees with them uh, via our social media. We try to develop genuine relationships so that they're there. But the best way to give anyone any kind of information is by honestly just telling it to them. So that's what we do. Um, we want to make sure that they feel as much of a part as the, of the restaurant as, as we do. Alice, I feel like this is something that you've really trailblazed in with Chez Panisse. And I think you were one of the very first people in the country to be really celebrating where the ingredients came from and celebrating the ingredients themselves and recognizing farmers and producers. Uh, have, how do you feel kind of seeing that trend be embraced and, and becoming uh, such a celebration all over the world? It's so important to have that information on the menu. I didn't realize it when we began. I just knew that I was dependent on the people who grew our food or raised the animals and fished for us. And I put it on the menu uh, to acknowledge that, that it wasn't just about our cooking, but it was about the food that they provided. But what's so interesting now is people come in and they say, when are Bob Kennard's grapes coming? You know, and I say, you know, you get to just say, you know, that only happens at Chez in August and September when the Bronx grapes come. So come back at that time. But you, we've always had a little tagline at the bottom of the menu that says that our, that our food is uh, grown sustainably, organically, that all of our fish comes from uh, fishermen who care about the values of good, clean, and fair. But we're at a really important moment, and Kristen went, and I were talking about it at lunch, because we know how much uh, that beef contributes to climate change. And um, there's a new book coming out by Jonathan Safra Foyer in the fall that says, uh, the title of the book is, We Are the Weather. And climate change begins at breakfast. And I've read that book, and I said, oh, my goodness. I, I, I mean, I knew how much the contribution of beef to climate was, but I, I just felt like maybe it's irresponsible for me to ever have beef on the menu. And then we talked about it among the staff, and we realized that we had three incredible ranches that are doing all the carbons. Um, uh, Sequestration? Yes, that, that word I can't pronounce. And we felt like if we had a little um, a, a piece of paper that talked about our farms and talked about how we're trying to responsibly respond to climate, that that would really help with the... I mean, I didn't think we had to be so... Um, what do I want to say? Um, instructive. <laughs> but 
In fact, I think we do, because not very many people know what it means to farm carbon. And they don't know what it means. People, of course, fast food nation would have us believe that all grass-fed beef is great. Well, we all know that many of them finished the cattle uh, with corn mm -hmm. and brought from God knows where. And that just because it's grass-fed beef, it doesn't mean these animals are roaming on a giant, you know, the hillsides. It, they may be in confinement. So it's, it's a very complicated issue, but I think it's so important that the restaurateurs help to educate us deliciously. The world is literally looking to you to lead on these issues too, and I, I think that's really something to be celebrated um, and sort of embrace that education through the menu and letting chefs lead um, as well is, is, is incredible. So this is how we're educating adult consumers. Um, but of course, educating children is incredibly important to you, Alice. It so is. I, I want you to talk about the age at which it's important to educate children about food. And why are you starting so young? I think the age is that age over there, mm -hmm. even earlier than that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just in, in Spain this summer, and I was uh, looking for pictures for this manifesto I'm writing right now is how to, how to teach slow food values in a fast food culture. And I took a picture of this little child in a baby carriage, and there was a bottle of, uh, I think it was this big, of Coke. Mm. And it was in her lap, just like uh, uh, a doll might be in a, in, a, in a child's arm. And I thought, well, what unconscious things are, is she observing but with that? So it's never too early to take children outside and, and bring them into the natural world because that's where it begins. It's falling in love with nature. And we've been working in a middle school in Berkeley for 25 years. And I just know that it doesn't take any time at all when you empower children to learn in, in, uh, in the kitchen or in the garden, when you learn by doing. And so all children can help with the cooking at home. We were just talking about this. We need to have some demonstration of people power. Maybe we could have a, a pea shelling at <laughs> Slow Food Nations where a thousand people sat at tables and shelled peas for the whole school system or something I love that great so like much. that. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's been very, very important for me to see the teenage kids and there are a thousand of them in this middle school, and they speak 22 different languages at home. But in the classrooms, they are not learning gardening or cooking per se, 
they're learning math, science, art, language, whatever it is. And they're just learning in this environment. And they're empowered to do really what they consider adult work, how to chop something, how to work with the, the very sharp tools in the garden to, to clip hedges or whatever they're doing while they're learning their math. And so I am very hopeful because we are in the right place at the right time in the state of California that we may be able to go for a free, sustainable school lunch, K through 12. <laughs> and make it part of the academic curriculum so that we have the time and attention to food. So if you're studying the Arabian Peninsula, the geography, you would go to lunch and you would be having, you know, a tabbouleh salad and some hummus. And you may be looking at a map, a place map, that shows you the Arabian Peninsula. And you may be looking at the, the elevations for the geography class to see what's grown at what altitude. And so it's an extension. Lunch becomes an understanding of cultures around the world. And you might be speaking a language, you know, speaking Spanish and eating a tortilla soup. Mm. And so in this way, we can really give children an edible education that is deep, that is not just once a week, that is an every day, you know, absorbing slow food values of just camaraderie at the table and sharing, understanding about portion size. You're just sharing plates of food. But this is something that we have lost in our fast food culture and we desperately need to bring it back. Oh, one more, one more, one more thing. And you guys, I really want you to talk about this because for me, the greatest pleasure of Chez Panisse has been to get to know the people who produce our food. We buy directly from them and we don't buy wholesale. We buy at the real cost of that food. And it has benefited us in a way you cannot possibly imagine over 48 years. So what, I, what we're proposing is that we have schools all around the country, in the rural areas as well as in the cities, buy directly from the people who produce the food because they need to be supported, the people who are taking care of the land for the future. So we want to connect up the dots and do that. And we also want to empower, like we do in the school with the kids, empower the people in the cafeteria to cook. Now they're just opening fast food packages and dumping it in the oven. And now, in some schools, 
like the Conscious Kitchen in Richmond, California, they're actually cooking. Mm -hmm. And the kids are so uh, excited by it. They go in the kitchen and they help and they, they want to taste. And it's a whole kind of experience of the senses and of hospitality that happens. And it can never happen when food is delivered from the outside and those people in the kitchen are only opening packages and most of the food is wasted in the 15 minutes the kids have to eat it. So, amen. <laughs> amen, Alice. Amen. Well, Kristen, can you talk about that and talk about procurement and, and your experiences, uh, if you've been able to source directly from farmers and the impact that that's had on your restaurant? So, um, I, I've, I've been working in fine, fine dining and, and for about 25 years and um, I started in some really beautiful restaurants. I had amazing chefs that bought from people that they knew that would show up at the back door. We would buy what they had. Um, and at a certain point in my very young career when I wasn't promoted to a position that I wanted to be in, I quit. And I went to go work for my local farmer's markets. And I became a market manager for two of our markets in uh, New Orleans. We have the Crescent City Farmer's Market Foundation there. Um, and I had the opportunity to sort of take the novelty away from the idea of what I think most Americans consider to be the experience at a farmer's market. You know, you buy the one jar of pepper jelly or you buy one bunch of carrots and it's this nice idea and it's a nice way to spend the morning. But when you start to respect these people as business owners and as also individuals that have contributions and obligations with their families, that's when you really start to think, not only did I buy this bunch of carrots, but I'm not going to let them go bad in my fridge. I'm going to actually eat them, and I'm not going to just eat, I'm not going to peel the carrot. I can just wash the carrot. Why peel it? What's the point? I'm going to eat the tops. So I'm going to make sure all of it gets done. And it there is just there's this beautiful relationship with your plate when you know that the money that you have spent on that food goes to a person that you know that you know that their kid is gonna be the first one in college, or that maybe they have a partner that is dealing with cancer. And it, it makes your food more, your food is so important. You really don't need any more reasons for your food to be any more important. But when you start to think about the lives that are affected through your power and your privilege in order to buy it, that's when it starts to make an impact. And so when we can share that with each other and we can teach that to young cooks, that becomes a relationship, and those things will carry you all the way through. Restaurant life is hard. It's not always the best thing to do, so why not surround yourself with an amazing group of people that makes it a little bit easier <laughs> and makes it worth going and doing every day? Krista, can you talk about um, procurement for the festival? Yeah, sure. Overall? Yeah. <laughs> there Anything are a lot of different areas. I mean, that's a very big question, but, it, but specifically, like, those relationships that, that you foster. I think... Um, one of the things that we hope to create at the festival is the chance for people to meet the producers of food, meet their makers, and through that we curate the Taste Marketplace. One thing we added this year, which I love, is the Tasting Room and the Meet Your Maker series, where people got to meet people like B-squared apiaries and Run Amok Maple, 
how can we use this space to really highlight and bring more craft producers? And I think that's one of our biggest challenges and goals is how can we create a space and support to bring more and more of them here. We work really closely with the Good Food Foundation and work to bring Good Food Award winners here, like Runamuck Maple. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a great partnership to try to bring in more and more and introduce them to more people. Awesome. Now we, we talked at lunch about the idea that maybe people would be interested in sponsoring a producer to come here because it's very difficult for a lot of people. And I was talking to uh, the coffee producer from Hawaii, mm -hmm. and he immediately said it would be so great if somebody could bring me here, fly me here, and help me feel that I didn't have to make money selling something here, that I could just offer taste. And maybe that could really happen. I'm sure a lot of people, and everybody's nodding heads out here, that, that they'd like to sponsor a producer to come next year. It would be great to do that. That is our goal. That's a terrific idea. Mm -hmm. How, if anybody were interested in connecting and supporting producers to come to Slow Food Nations, Krista, how might they go about getting involved? <laughs> Well, I don't usually do this, but they I'm going to give you my personal email because they should reach out directly to me. You heard it here on Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> Krista, K-R-I-S-T-A, at slowfoodusa.org. <laughs> we really care that much about making this happen, so I would love to hear from anyone who would like to join us to help make this possible. Awesome. Those floodgates are open. It's official. <laughs> Um, I, I want to wrap, Alice, with an idea that you spoke about during your keynote on Friday morning, um, which is that we need to hear more good news coming out of the food movement. It's very easy to sound dire, and there is, as you point out, so much good news. And first, I'd like to ask you, does good news truly have more power to change people's minds than bad news? Well, I just know that when I hear a really good story, I can remember it for a very long time. And uh, uh, I keep talking about one particular story because it happens to be about waste. And we're all concerned about that right now. But it was on CNN International, and it was a 10-minute little good news story at the end of the news, the bad news. And uh, it was about Cairo and when they had this issue of, of picking up garbage and nobody wanted to do it. No one would pick up the garbage of Cairo. And ultimately there was that untouchable um, religious group that volunteers to, to do that work. And they lived in a kind of slum outside of Cairo. And they divided themselves into all different groups to pick up different parts of the garbage on the streets. And then they took it back. And they me remade a lot of things and sold them back to the people in Cairo. 
and you saw 10 years later, they lived on the top of the hill and built a whole village up on the top of the hill outside of Cairo. And I just thought, oh, how, how empowering, how, you know, a lot of people can, can really take care of an issue. I think about it all the time when I'm in New York City and it's piled on the street this high. <laughs> and who is going to take care of it? But if we don't get involved in the actual work of taking care of it, we will never learn not to waste it. I think it's, I think, I thought, well, maybe every city block could take care of the garbage of the block where you have to sort it in some way. You have to, I just saw people here doing that sorting. But when, when you have to get involved yourself, whoa, it changes the way that, that you think about waste. And so if we could have a good news, little five or 10 minutes about projects around the country amazing projects that you know of that are very inspiring. Maybe you have to get this on your, your website too, but you can send them to me at, at alice at chepanese.com. Uh, but I, I want to know those transformational stories because we need to know that this is happening in this country and we need to know right now. And so please let's figure out how to do this amazing well um we can we can start at heritage radio network um because i'm very very inspired by what you said um i'd love to direct any of you uh to our show meet and three for some really inspiring and uplifting food news stories we do have a great variety and mix of shows of stories on that show so please check that out but i want to end by giving each of you three an opportunity to share a good news story uh, very briefly, that is happening in the food world can be anything. Spot. Oh, you can think about that it for a moment. I'm going to think about it for a moment. Well, I'm going to share. It's a fairly, it, it's a broader story, but it is related to slow food, and it is um, around our Arc of Taste program. And I think that there are people all over the world who are identifying products that, in some ways, are close to becoming extinct meaning they might not travel that well in a global economy, they, but they are so important to our agricultural biodiversity, our cultural definition, and they need to be saved. They need to be eaten to save them. And I think there are so many good stories that surround that program. Awesome. Um, so I, we do a lot of work uh, at home with a lot of youth empowerment projects and, and programs. And there's one that I specifically love very much, and it's called Liberty's Kitchen in New Orleans. And I, I think that when we sort of step back and we stop thinking about um, chefs and restaurant owners as these, like, fancy, famous celebrity people, and we start thinking about them as craftsmen. And it's a trade, and it's something to be taught, and it's something to be shared. It's something that can be developed into art, but when you really have something that you can pass on to someone else, to me that is one of the most rewarding things about being a chef. Um, I've enjoyed seeing people sort of rise up 
from maybe the opportunities they haven't been given or haven't had access to. So whenever we have the chance to open the door and let somebody else in and just share a little bit of knowledge, it goes a long way. And that's, for me, probably one of my favorite things. That's mine, too. Um, one of the most wonderful moments that I've had recently was doing a school lunch to a group of million and billionaires <laughs> who were in the Forbes 400, I think it's called, and they wanted me to do this school lunch and in the middle of their conference. And I did that Syrian school lunch because we were having the event in Jewish Museum in San Francisco. And in the front row, it turns out, there was the mayor of Stockton, California. I don't know whether you know him, but he's 27 years old. And he was sitting next to a very uh, important philanthropist. And after he ate lunch, he said, I want to do this in all 53 schools in Stockton. I want to do this. And the philanthropist said, I'll help you. And so we're now looking for all the farmers <laughs> who are living close to Stockton. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to do this. But he's very serious. And he's got a great food service director. And that's what it takes. It takes the powers that be to allow you to make this experiment real. And that's the, the power, too, I think, of eating together. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't think that moment would have happened without sitting down over a meal, and I think that's absolutely remarkable. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's going to bring us to the end of our time. Can we please have a huge round of applause for our panelists today? Thank you. Thank you, Krista Roberts, Kristen Essig, and thank you, Alice Waters, so much. You are all wonderful and Thank inspiring, you. and it's been a pleasure to have you. You've been listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. You'll be able to find this and all of our shows on heritageradionetwork.org or anywhere you listen to podcasts by searching Heritage Radio Network on tour. Huge thank you again to Slow Food, Hearst Ranch, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, and to Big Green Egg for supporting our coverage. We'll be right back after a short break. Thanks.